Okay, welcome in everybody to this episode of Mythic Existence. Today we have our first guest speaker, Natalie Christensen. Natalie has a master's degree in folklore from Utah State University, where we were graduate students together. She wrote her thesis about rumor and misinformation, and on today's episode, we talk about the spread of rumors, question how culpable tech companies are in their spread, and how folklorists can combat dangerous misinformation. So sit back and get ready for another great episode of Mythic Existence. Okay, Natalie, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into folklore in the first place? Yeah, so I've always been, well, not always, I became interested in folklore when I was about 20. Um, I was living in, I was doing a field study in India as part of an anthropology minor in college. And I was an English major anthropology minor, which is kind of like the marriage of folklore in a lot of ways. And one of my good friends who I was doing the field study with, she loved folklore and talked about it a lot. I had never heard of it before. So she got me interested in taking classes um, during my undergrad. And then I always really liked it, but I didn't think I would really do something with it. Um, I ended up teaching high school for four years, and um, which kind of felt folklore to me because I was interested in just sort of like diving into groups of people and I got to have like cool experiences with students and stuff like that and see kind of how they lived and I don't know it was fun um and then after four years of doing that I went to um Utah State University and did a master's in folklore and I ended up doing that because um I was really interested in doing like people research for a tech company and um just kind of like wondering if there were things I could do to help make tech companies a little more ethical and how they were integrating technology into different cultures and platforms and stuff like that. So. Cool. Yeah. I always like to hear about why and how people got into folklore because it's always just an interesting story. And mine was kind of similar. I mean, since I did English and anthropology as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, your, your thesis and your work is kind of a call for folklorists to get into the tech companies. Um, and kind of a call for myself, like, please hire me. This is why I think I would be good. Yeah, well, I, th- I thought it was a really good, like, marketing device uh, in that respect. So, um, We'll see if it works, eventually. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, so how did you get into to rumor and misinformation in the first place? Like, what, what got you interested in that? I wish I could remember. I always think about this, and I'm like, start getting interested in this in particular um and the thing that comes to mind the most is I think um when the stuff when the conflict in Myanmar started happening um and it was basically like you know the ethnic minority the Rohingya people were getting um there's just like a huge ethnic cleansing of them and I was really interested in the story because Facebook, like, Facebook didn't have good, uh, like, controls there, people who spoke the language and stuff like that, so there was a lot of misinformation and, like, hate speech and stuff spread about the Rohingya people, and there's a long history of conflict there uh, between the Rohingya and the, like, majority Muslim, but um, that really, like, accelerated the problem, or really, like, exacerbated the problem, like, Facebook not having good checks and balances, and so I was really interested in, like, wait, like, why are we putting, why are you putting, um, 
something like Facebook, your platform into this place that's like, and then you're not having good checks and balances for it and like making sure that it's not going to like get people killed, which is what happened. So I think that's kind of where it started was with that news story. Um, yeah. Okay, so my understanding of the situation in Myanmar, just to give our audience some background of what was going on, there was the Rohingya people who are the Muslim minority, and in Myanmar, I mean, so many of the people are Buddhists, like some 90 plus percent, and the the Buddhists were using Facebook as a platform to spread misinformation and lies about things that were happening to the Rohingya or what they were doing, and Facebook has a, a complete different context in which it's used in Myanmar. Like, the way that they use Facebook is completely different than in the United States. It's much more of, like, I mean, it is the news source and is definitely central to how they communicate online. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's a really important point because... Facebook, their functions, from my understanding, it functions like the internet or like Google almost. Like that's just like how they access the internet is Facebook. And like you said, that's how they get news. That's how they see what's going on um, is through Facebook. And so, yeah, when you have, when you're allowed to just kind of say whatever you want on Facebook to an extent, to a big extent here, then, you know, that's going to influence what people are thinking and what they're seeing. And there's a history of conflict between the Buddhist and the Rohingya people. Um, and they've had conflict before, but like I was saying, I think that Facebook, because of what you're saying, how it functions in the country, um, and then like coupled with their history and not good checks and balances on Facebook there. And they, and they don't have like a good cultural presence on, um, like Facebook, the company doesn't as far as like, they didn't have a lot of people. I don't remember if they had no people who spoke language or like hardly any people who spoke language who was, who were like looking at what people were posting on Facebook in Myanmar, so yeah, it just caused a big conflict really quickly. Yeah, and so one of the main things that you're trying to argue in your your work is that folklorists should actually be employed by tech companies in particular, and one of the big reasons is because we look at cultural context and we're able to dig beneath the surface of what's going on, and that's, I mean, that's kind of had a, a complicated history in the field of folklore. I found it really interesting how you were talking about, uh, I think in the 70s, there is a group of of folklorists who said, we need to actually, you know, be more active. And then Richard Dorson said, no, we we shouldn't be active. We need to be kind of more like passive observers of culture. But I tend to take your side on that. I think that folklorists should be in more uh, hands-on roles definitely in tech companies as far as you know being that bridge between the folk and the company i think is how you place it so yeah yeah Yeah, i mean i think it's like tricky because you don't want to be a person who's like an outsider coming in and saying like this is what you should be doing or this is how we can help you or whatever but at the same time if you are dedicated to this field and you spent time studying and you know like um, how to be culturally competent and and like you and like you were saying, you know, bridge, be a bridge between like tech and people who are actually using that tech. Then I think that there is, and and you know, people might not agree with this, but for me, with what I want to do with folklore, it feels like there's a responsibility to be an interventionist. Whereas like, you know, someone who 
is maybe, I don't know, like on an arts council, maybe they don't have as much of that like mantle, but still, I don't know. I think any folklorist, even on an arts council or a professor or whatever, because they have that knowledge um, and that experience, I think that, yeah, it's important to try to intervene. It kind of makes me think of like what happened this summer on social media or last summer with Black Lives Matter, like after the killing of George Floyd. Like, I think that there were people um, like me, like I didn't talk about politics very often on my Instagram. And then I kind of experimented with talking about politics on my Instagram because it just kind of felt, I kind of felt weird not doing that when I did feel strongly about certain things and I have that tiny sphere of influence, you know? So I don't know. Yeah, and I, I found it really interesting how you talked about what folklorists are unique at as far as looking at the internet and how things are spread, um, especially in regards to like how memes are spread to, or used to spread false information uh, and how social media can be weaponized. Uh, one of the, you used you used two case studies. One was Myanmar, and the other was the Alabama election, and. If I'm not mistaken, what was kind of going on there was the the Democrat the Democratic candidate used cultural knowledge to his advantage to try and make it seem like the Republican candidate was anti-alcohol. Uh, like, so yeah, can you talk about that just a little bit? Yeah, so I got that from an episode of This American Life. Um, but yeah, basically what you said is exactly right. This guy was like, I hate these tactics that Republicans used in the 2016 election, but I'm going to use them now because this is a close race and we need to win it in Alabama. And so, yeah, basically he just tried to freak out all the Republicans who weren't anti-alcohol that their candidate was anti-alcohol to kind of push them over to push Democrat for this election. And um, yeah, it ended up working, you know, and they had a lot of... Um, like memes and videos and stuff that they were spreading online and I think the thing that's really interesting about memes um is that I mean it is a way that we communicate now right like it's such a quick easy way to communicate a message and to get like the whole like distill a huge message down into like one image one one quote like one one phrase or whatever right and I think I kind of had an interesting experience with this um where I was on a group thread with my cousin, some of my cousins and a couple of our close friends. It was like maybe six of us or something, eight of us. And um, all of us were talking about politics and sending a lot of memes. And it was with a lot of memes about like Rudy Giuliani and the Four Seasons fiasco. And this was before the, like right before this last election. So we're all saying all this stuff. And then finally, one of my cousins is like, sorry, I need to leave this thread. Like, I just don't think like, all the hate that's going on, it's not making me feel comfortable, and da-da-da. And I kind of was thinking, like, like, I mean, yeah, we're ripping on Trump, but we're also, like, just talking about, like, the Four Seasons fiasco, which feels like it could be funny to people on all sides. But it kind of made me realize, like, okay, when you're communicating with themes, you have to recognize that, like, on one hand, it can be really light and, and like, less heavy-handed. But on the other hand, like, you have to understand a lot of context to be able to understand one meme, right? So, like, if my cousin doesn't understand everything that's going on with Four Seasons and, like, the Sasha Cohen film that he did with Rudy Giuliani and 
you know, Giuliani's reputation with Trump and all these things, then you might feel like dumb or disconnected or attacked. And I think that that's something that, I don't know, it's, I think that memes are such a powerful way to communicate and also a really powerful way to make people feel like dumb or left out or like they don't understand what's going on or attacked. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's one of the things you talked about is how social media is, it confuses and overwhelms people. And that's one of the reasons why rumors spread. And so, yeah, I, I think if you don't have that cultural knowledge, then that's how you allow uh, rumors spread. You know, maybe, uh, Nancy, the 60 year old mom, like sees a, a meme about Trump or whatever, and doesn't understand that it's satire or something like that. And get, she, it gets spread. Or, I mean, I see stuff like that happening all the time. So right. yeah, totally. Um, yeah, I was going to say something else. And I just forgot. Oh, I think one of the other things that's really interesting with like social media, um, that I talked about in my thesis as well is this idea of like censorship through noise. Um, because we always think, or at least I always thought of censorship as like shutting people down and shutting people up. And there's a lot of talk right now about like, you know, Facebook is cens- censoring because they're not letting Donald Trump off their, on their platform, whatever. And like, yes, that is definitely a form of censoring. But there's this other, or of censorship, but then there's this other side of it where it's just like being inundated with so much information that you just can't sift through it or you can't sift through it in a rational way or it just feels so overwhelming and confusing. And I think that that is what we're seeing. I think that that should be our bigger concern with censorship, not like not letting people say things or closing down platforms, like, you know, or having rules for parlor or whatever. But I'm more worried about just like how much information we have access to, how much inaccurate information we have access to, how quickly we can get that information, how quickly it spreads and how, yeah, there's just so much noise. It's really hard to sift through that. There is, and it it presents kind of a sticky situation because it's like, where is the line for when you can decide when something isn't allowed to be posted on the internet or not? You know, like it's it's a deeply like ethical issue at its core, I think. And a super volatile issue because it's like, you know, I think you and I might have, you know, opinions about like, well, this this draws like this is the line or whatever, Mm -hmm. but that line also pisses a lot of people off and yeah. causes a lot of debate and it's hard to yeah like reach consensus on that so. and i think that that was one of the reasons why you know like trump was elected in the first place is that his followers felt like they were being uh denigrated in the first place and i mean that it's not like the, conspiracies and rumor spread aren't a, a right wing or a left wing thing i mean People across the spectrum are doing it, but like it, it could be conceivable that you would, if you were to censor false information on a place like Facebook, that the people, one, would feel first off like they were being censored because they are, or two, they could go to more dangerous underground places, wherever that might be on the internet. Um, and end up, you know, having things like what happened at the Capitol occur right. more often. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's so hard to know, like, yeah, what's better? Like, is it better to just... Because I think about, like, with Parler, right? And um, I don't even remember. Is it, like, something about the App Store? I should have looked at this before I 
let's start talking about this, but I think it was something where, like, uh, Google or Apple or something, they basically put more rules on Parler, so then they had to shut down their app, or they were like, you can't be on our network anymore, or maybe it was, I don't remember, maybe you'll have to cut this out, but basically, like, Parler had rules placed on them by a big tech company, and so then it's, like, still this big tech company who's in charge or in control of them, not, like, laws necessarily, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, like, yeah, like, who has the power and why do they have the power and should we... I don't know. I don't know. I think there needs to be more legislation and stuff, but I'm not like a political junkie, so I probably shouldn't get into that. But yeah. I'm curious to like what, okay, if, if you were to be employed as a folklorist at a tech company in like an interventionist role, what what company would you like to work for? And like, how would you envision a, a day in your life going? That's a good question and also a hard question because I think that like, going into this, like, Facebook just feels so, like, hugely unethical, and, like, but also has so much influence, and, like, a place where I would, like, love to work for Facebook and try to, like, you know, help change things, but also, like, I don't really feel comfortable right now with the idea of working for Facebook, and also it feels like Facebook has made it pretty clear they don't really want to change the ways that they're unethical, or they're not interested in that, right? So, I don't know, like, I think that there's part of me that would also be interested in, um, uh, and this is not, like, necessarily tech, but I think tech adjacent, um, I was, sorry to reference This American Life again, but I was just listening to, um, a new episode of This American Life, and there was a segment where they were just basically talking about, like, they had a focus group with Republican, with Trump voters, trying who said they were on the fence about the vaccine and they're trying to convince them to get the vaccine and they're just like trying so hard to figure out like okay how can we get this message across that they should get the vaccine that it's safe you know whatever all all the reasons you should get the vaccine and um part of why they did this was to try to see like okay is there anything that we can say that will change their minds right and in the end, they did have some, they did get some ideas of, like, okay, we've learned that, like, a politician saying to people, like, you should get the vaccine. I got the vaccine. That's not really helpful. People don't, like, those people don't care what a politician has to say about it, right? Um, and then they were thinking, like, okay, well, maybe if we have doctors, like, people's personal doctors, if we can figure out a way for, like, people's personal doctors to give them the message that they should get the vaccine, they might be more receptive because they have a relationship with their doctor or whatever. So I think, like, right now I'd be interested in doing that type of work with, like, a focus group, whether it's, like, in tech or politics or even just, like, um, like a, you know, misinformation NGO somewhere where it's, like, okay, how can we, like, really help people? I mean, I don't even want to say help people because that feels kind of slimy, but, like, help people change the way they think, right? Yeah. How can we, like distill important information in a way that people will, like, understand it, believe it, like, the vaccine, that they can get accurate information, that they'll want to get the vaccine, and that it'll, like, make our numbers as the United States, like, have higher vaccination rates. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, so maybe the maybe the difference comes down to being proactive and reactive, right? Like, instead of uh, being reactionary in the sense that you're, okay, this post got uploaded on Facebook, and it's it's fake, like it's false information, we need to take it down or whatever, get in front of the message and say, here's the facts about the vaccination and the vaccine, here's the fact about the election, 
whatever. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good point because I do think there's like a lot of damage control being done um, and like flagging things on Twitter or Facebook. And I haven't done enough research to know like if that's really helping or like really working, but mm-hmm. I would imagine that there's plenty of people who see that and are just like, well, of course Facebook's going to tell me this is fake because Facebook's a corrupt company or they're run by the government or they're, you know, whatever conspiracy theory is connected to that or I don't know. So yeah, I think that, and I think that there's countries that are doing a really good job, like, um, and I wish I knew more about this, but, um, like in Finland, they hired somebody to come in and they're like really concerned about misinformation there because they are so close to like the Russia border and they're very aware that like Russia, that they're a country that Russia could try to like influence or infiltrate. And um, so they basically like have this whole program for like teaching digital literacy there that seems to be working. I don't, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to say, but um, I think that, like, yeah, like, how could we, you know, what could we do to make Americans more digitally literate? Or, and it's, I think it's hard because I think we have a very interesting, unique country with the sense of, like, individualism and American exceptionalism and nationalism. And, but it's also part of that is, like, okay, figuring out how do we take these American cultural values and, and use those to our advantage to try to promote more digital literacy or whatever. Because um, I think, like, what you're saying is a really good point. I think, like, you can only do so much with, like, damage control and reacting to things, especially, like, things spread online so fast. And when you take something down, then people are freaked out and feel like we're being censored and there's a conspiracy theory. And that's why I can't find the pandemic video anymore, whatever it is. I don't know if pandemic actually got taken down, but you know what I mean? I think it gets really tricky really fast and like spreads really fast yeah i was gonna say like america is so fragmented culturally that it might be really difficult to have something like what's going on in finland uh as far as educating because there's so many different like sects of people and it's like sometimes i feel like people are in too far into their own cultural ideas that it's really hard to like reconstruct a way of of educating them in a in a way that's constructive i guess yeah i totally agree and i think that like i don't have the answers but i do think that that is where like folklorists could be more beneficial in those types of spaces where it's like okay what are the cultural values how can we use these cultural values to to our advantage or to teach this or that and i think like like, with the gun debate here, you know, people always bring up Australia and what they did with, like, the gun buyback program, and, like, you know, like, I would love it if the U.S. did something like that. That seems like a great idea, but the fact is, is, like, our gun culture is so completely different. Saying this is someone who doesn't know a lot about Australia's gun culture, but even the fact that they were able to, like, implement a program like that and buy back so many guns and stuff, like, just people here, there are people here who are like guns are just like really really important to them and you know so how do we I think that folklorists and and anthropologists and other people in social sciences you know have an ability to be able to look at like cultural values and and try to figure out like okay how can we like shift the thinking around this based off of the cultural values and not like just some idea in a think tank separately that's not really connected to the people or it's not really going to work because you haven't done like that on the ground people-centered research that I think folklorists are so good at. 
Absolutely. Um, and going back to Facebook, like there's there's so much misinformation on Facebook that like I don't know how it's even manageable. Like totally. I I uh I followed a bunch of groups like years ago that were about stuff that I'm interested in, like the history of magic and stuff like that. And now I get on and every single post is just riddled with misinformation by people that are like not haven't, you know, studied this stuff like academically. Not that you need to be study something academically to understand it, but like somebody who has just done a little bit of research, yeah, and just posts whatever they feel like. And then the comments are just full of people that are reiterating that thing and that that's something that you talk about is that like echo chambers is a big reason why rumors get spread and like confirmation bias is at the very core of of conspiracy and rumor and that people aren't looking for the right the true information or the correct information they're looking for information that is already confirming the ideas and that they already have and their preconceived notions and like that's what was going on in Myanmar is that you know people people were just finding the the information that confirmed their biases and so that's something that's really hard to combat in the first place totally and I think it's something that like again I don't have answers to that I think it's something that is like yeah, such a big part of just, like, being a thinking human and someone who's, yeah, you're, you believe what you believe. And I think, for me, like, studying this stuff and researching this, I've tried to be more aware of, like, okay, I'm hearing this thing that I don't agree with. Why don't I agree with it? Like, where is this information coming from instead of just writing it off? But it's still, like, I still absolutely am more credibly things that fit in with my worldview, and it's hard to, like, shift that, you know? And I think even when my ideas do shift, it's still, like, for example, um, referencing last summer again with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and stuff, and, like, I had never heard about defunding police or abolishing the police, and when I first was hearing that, I was kind of like, oh, that seems kind of stressful, and then the more research I did on it, I was like, oh, I could get behind this. This is, like, a good idea, but that's also, but that's still, like, aligned with, like, my like political party and the way that I think anyways right like it's like it was a new idea for me but it still checks out with like what I believe and like the way I believe politically and stuff like that right so it's like yeah it's, it's really hard to not have those biases and it's hard to think critically about things right it's hard it's so annoying and so hard to have to like like if you're a person who just like doesn't trust the news for example and obviously that's like a big blanket statement the news but for me it's like okay if you don't trust the news then there's an element of you that I would argue like maybe doesn't understand that like you know a news organization like let's take the New Yorker because they're known for being really diligent fact checkers that there are legal teams and editors and fact checkers and all these things in place to help correct information get out right so that like when I read a New Yorker article I don't feel like I have to fact check it because I feel like it's a really reputable source, but then somebody else might not trust the New Yorker. And then if you don't trust the source, it's on you to kind of like fact check it. And that's a lot of work and it's really hard. Right. And so like people aren't going to fact check their own stuff. And I think that's something for me, like, because I have so many people who know that I've studied this, I feel really 
paranoid and aware of like, okay, when I'm posting something on social media or I'm referencing something in a conversation, like have I, like, is this a credible source? And it's exhausting even for me, someone who thinks about it a lot and is interested in this and wants to be really, like have a lot of credibility with what I share and post and stuff. Like exhausting to just always be like making sure like, okay, this is a tweet. Is this person a journalist? Where did they get this? You know, it's just, it's hard to, it's a lot. It's a lot to do. And so again, you have news organizations who do that for us, but if you don't trust those news organizations, then I don't know, you know? Yeah. And I, I recently read a, a book that was written by a bunch of folklorists about COVID conspiracies and the origins of why there's why they spread and stuff like that you would really like it um but i mean conspiracy is classified under rumor like they're very similar and one part that they talked about is when uh, a conspiracy like is something that you're interested in or that you might believe in you have to question why that conspiracy is something that a uh, appeals to you so it's like if you don't think that vaccinations help what does that say about you well well it probably says that you you mistrust you know doctors in the first place and so i mean there's a lot of there's a really interesting cha- uh, chapter about african americans and and their relationship to the vaccination just because they have been historically mistreated by the, the medical profession in a way that wh- white people typically haven't. Right. Um, so that's always something that you also have to question. Like, what is this rumor? Why is it appealing to me? What, what does it say about myself? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what a folklorist yeah. would look at. I've been thinking about that kind of, um, cause I live in Utah, which last I checked, I'm like, again, always scared. I'm going to say something that's not totally correct. But last I checked, Utah is the third lowest in the country for vaccination rates, which really surprised me. And, like, um, two of the other states are places where there are a lot more black and African-American people, which, like you said, historically have some distrust that's completely warranted and valid. Um, and so I'm like, what? Like, what's going on in Utah? Like, why is Utah the third lowest, you know? And one of the things I was thinking of is um, because the Mormon church is so prominent here, obviously there's got to be, like, a lot of Mormons who are not interested in vaccinations. I think the number for Mormons is 50-50. But I was thinking about, like, you know, like, okay, what what do Mormons believe? Like, what is the cultural background for Mormons? And it's, like, they are – it's a church where people believe that – and I'm a Mormon, so I'm not trying to say this as, like, they, but, you know, whatever. Like, the Mormon church teaches that – it's like the one true church on the earth and that like it's kind of like this like chosen people um type of culture or whatever and this is I don't know if this is why but I'm like that kind of connects to like the American exceptionalism and like people who aren't getting vaccinated who are like you know like it kind of is this idea of like you know I I don't want to put words in those people's mouths but it kind of feels like this thing of like I'm special like my immune system will protect me I don't need this it's kind of that exceptionalism thing and then um, and I wonder if that's going on in Utah with the church. And again, like, not totally sure, but that's something where, like, you know, if there was an opportunity for somebody to really dive in to that world here and figure out, like, okay, what do Mormons value? Why are they vaccine hesitant? How can we use their cultural beliefs and value system to try to, like, change the narrative around vaccinations, you know? I feel like there's a lot of places like that that would be so valuable for folklore, whether it's, like, government work or 
public health or yeah, maybe it is tech and the way that those messages are spreading. But I think there's a lot of, a lot of places where folklorists could do work like that. Yeah, I've wondered that as well. And kind of what I came up with, and I could definitely be wrong about this, but well, it's not just Mormons. It's also, I think, the Baptist Church has a similar phenomenon in which they're even more anti-vax. And I think that part of the reason is because it's like, you know, I'm the chosen person. God has my back. And, like, things are going to be taken care of if I get sick because, like, God is in control. And, you know, so that's that's really hard to... Yeah. to com- combat if that's the way and, that you look at it but yeah and who knows if like you and I did like actual on the ground research and like interviews with these people maybe we'd come up with something totally different and be like oh it actually has nothing to do with with the way they think about God or whatever yeah. I think again that's like folklorists are good at doing that on the ground interviewing and research and I think that more companies organizations government etc could really benefit from having people like like us, folklorists, anthropologists, whatever, social science people doing that type of work and that type of interviewing. Well, there's a project for us. Uh, it might be easier for you since you're out there right now, but that would be interesting to get to the bottom of, of like what, I mean, I think the reasons why people are not getting vaccinated is widely differing based on cultural context. And it kind of goes back to how fragmented the United States is. It's not for one reason. It's for many, many different reasons and why people are, you know, hesitant to wear masks or (laughs) all this stuff. Um, I mean, yeah, for COVID is kind of a landmine for yeah. or a goldmine for uh, for folklorists in a lot of ways, in a lot of very sad ways. But you know, that's folklorists don't shy away from those types of of topics. So, well, especially for like rumors and misinformation and stuff, because like whenever there's like a hard event going on or something that feels threatening, then like rumors are how you make sense of things or how you. Um, like understand things or get information or whatever you know so it's like yeah it's a very right field for that right now absolutely and I mean it's interesting to see how these like motifs as far as rumors and conspiracies are kind of reshuffled because a lot of the COVID conspiracies and like the rumors that are going around today are just the same things that have been being said for hundreds or thousands of years like uh, you know, the vaccine is some kind of mark of the beast or whatever, and right. the Bill Gates is the Antichrist. It's like, those are just things that have been said every time. Yeah. There's, it, it, I mean, these rumors and conspiracies are, are yeah, they're, I mean, they're ways of making sense of, of our situation. Yeah, but. and I think that that's, like, one of the big values and benefits to understanding rumors and misinformation. And obviously it's not like everyone's going to study this or whatever, but for me, like seeing those patterns has been really valuable and important of like, Oh, this is the same type of rumor, just like in a new light, you know, like in a new context, in a new, like in a new year, you know, in 2020 instead of 1980 or whatever. And I think that like, Again, that's something where folklorists see that and recognize that and understand that. And I think that that is important information to try to get to the public. Maybe it's not. Maybe people wouldn't change their minds at all. But I think there's, like, value in seeing just those patterns, right? I agree completely. 
Well, I don't want to hold you for too long. Uh, I know you have to get going eventually. I think we've had a great discussion so far. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to, to add or conclude with? Any final thoughts about uh, the power of rumors or, you know, what what you think folklorists need to do with these types of situations? was just like how powerful like anecdotal information can be right like I was just reading um in the New York Times like one of their morning newsletters about how like people will get so stressed about a statistic where the odds are really low like a plane crash but you're like way more likely to get in a car crash which this is like totally me right like I'm so scared of flying and driving I don't get as scared about right and it's because we just like drive every day and we just like we just, like, have accepted that risk of, like, yeah, lots of uh, car crashes happen when I have this, or whatever. But I think that's also kind of an interesting thing, and the article is talking about it in conjunction with, like, COVID and getting the vaccine, um, where, like, you know, if you're vaccinated, then COVID presents, like, a really small risk to you. Um, but then, like, like you know, I don't, I don't know, but then there's people who are, like, really stressed about you know, the people who died from the Johnson and Johnson vaccine or who get the vaccine, but still feel stressed and paranoid about like getting COVID or whatever, even though the, the rates are really low. So I don't know. I don't know if I have like a really cohesive thing to say about that, but just that I think like that goes along with rumor too, right? Where like, it seems to be that like a lot of rumors are very anecdotal, right? Like people's experiences or something they saw or whatever. And so that can also be really hard because anecdotes are really powerful. And so when you see an anecdote, like I've gotten freaked out from like anti-vax, like anecdote things where it's like, I got this vaccine and the next day I had a seizure and all this stuff happened. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's really scary. Is that real? Is that true? Can this vaccine cause that? When really like statistically it's unlikely. And also like it's anecdotal. Like there's a lot of other things that could have caused that seizure and it could be a coincidence that it happened the next day, right? I don't know anecdotes can just be really really powerful and really scary and that's how we get a lot of information especially like on the internet right yeah absolutely and I mean I think that's another way that folklorists are uniquely poised to study these types of things because we look at transmission and how how things are spread and why they're spread and so I mean you know we could be like okay yes there has been some some side effects or there's been this has happened that has happened but here's the actual statistics on it and you know i mean 50 people have happened out of how many ever millions or whatever it is so well i think it's interesting too like i feel really comforted when i look at stuff um on the cdc about the vaccination or whatever or or news articles or whatever and they're saying like we're not sure about this like we're not, not sure yet how it affects you know, babies, or we're not sure yet, um, about this or that about vaccine, or, you know, okay, we know Johnson and Johnson, like, there is a chance that it's correlated to this, like, blood clotting, right, in women from these ages, these ages, I think that, like, while that can feel kind of scary, I think that can really freak people out, whereas that feels really comforting to me, because it feels really realistic, and, like, okay, like, of course, of course we don't have all the answers, of course, like, some people might be impacted negatively by a vaccine, or whatever, um, and I think it's also just kind of like, why do why does that freak out some people? 
why does it make other people feel comforted, right? Like, I don't really know how to tie that thought up together, too. But I think, yeah, I don't know. It's just interesting how, like, the same information can just land so differently for different people and based off of, like, what your fears are and beliefs are and stuff like that. So. Yep, I agree. Well, I think that's a good stopping point for us. So thank you so much for taking some time to speak with us. It was a very uh, informative and entertaining conversation. Well, I had a good time chatting about this, so thanks for inviting me. That's it for today's episode. Mythic Existence is now on Patreon, so take a look at our site if you would like to donate. Also, be sure to follow the podcast's Instagram and Twitter pages, as well as the YouTube channel. Thanks for listening. See you next time.